Today's podcast concerns a uh, 1951 novel entitled The Disappearance that was written by Philip Wiley and concerns a moment in time, the time is 1950, when all the females of the world are separated from all the males of the world through some kind of a cosmic blink or something that is never explained. And the men have to live completely without women, yet remembering and having all the things of and all the residue and the remains of their women. Their world is totally unchanged except for the fact that the women have physically disappeared. And the same happens with the women. In the world of the women, all the men have simultaneously disappeared. And Wiley, the novelist, follows through what happens over a four-year period. Um, Five-four is the word of the disaster. It's like 9-11. Everybody begins to call it five-four because on the uh, – at uh, – uh, on the uh, uh, at 5:04 uh, p.m. on Valentine's Day of 1950, uh, uh, it turns out it's Valentine's Day. Uh, at 5:04, all the women disappeared from the vantage point of the men, and all the men disappeared from the vantage point of the women. And Wiley very deftly follows two parallel worlds as the two worlds—one of men only and one of women only—pursue uh, and live their lives in this disastrous dystopian new way, what do they find out, especially about each other, both the, the opposite sex who's not present, what do they learn about them when they're not there, and what do they learn about themselves, what do women learn about women in a world without men, and what do men learn about themselves in a world without women. And this really science fiction, what today is often called dystopian romance novel and uh, narrative with tremendous amount of philosophical and religious content, for reasons I'll explain was a major uh, work in American literature. It's uh, disappeared from the standpoint of most people for a number of reasons, partly because although it is extremely radical psychosexually and extremely realistic about the real issues between men and women, and it is often thought to be a proto-feminist, if not a full-blown feminist work, because basically the women get on better without the men than the men do without the women. The ending is very, uh, is so harmonic and so monergistic and so uh, ultimately happy and so fulfilled and so uh, sexually complementary in the broad sense of that word uh, and there is such a, a tremendous uh, burst of joy at the end of the novel as opposed to horror and desperate loss and failure, moral failure, finally on everyone's side in the previous part of the novel that uh, I think a lot of partisan people uh, don't really like the ending because it's too hopeful. It doesn't stay with the anger, although it explores what he calls the greatest colossal bigotry of all, specifically the deep-down hatred of women on the part of men and the deep-down fear of men uh, racially almost inherited through the generations, inbred on the part of women. He explores the fear and the resentment and finally the bitterness of women against men and the finally the kind of sexual hatred and uh, contempt on the part of men deep down um, towards women that it's very uncomfortable to read. If you're a man who's thinking about these things, and, and most of us are, um, the book is extremely uncomfortable, and it's uncomfortable for women. And uh, yet, uh, many people put this on their top ten list of movies of, of movies that were never made, of books that should have been made into movies, because it's so deep, and it's so radical, and it's so, and it's so ultimately such a feel-good novel, but it takes you to the very last 
stop on the strain between uh, between uh, uh, the sexual warfare of the human race. And uh, this book, uh, I think, is just a little bit too close to home for most people. However, just so you know, it's been published in a recent edition, again, in paperback, by Bison Press, B-I-S-O-N, B as in boy, and it's available on the Internet for a very reasonable price. So get it and read it, and you'll never be the same. Now, I'm talking about this because it touches the great issue that I talked about at Mockingbird in New York City recently, in the third address, that for Christianity, the nightmare is and certainly has become sex. I want to talk about the issue of sex as it has failed. You know, we have that, we now show a funny picture that's sort of silly or ridiculous or doesn't end well, and we write across it the word fail. Well, if you want the word sexuality or human sexuality or sexual conduct or sexual being or sexual feeling or sexual inheritance and legacy and, and genetics and environment and man female, if you put that sort of across the, the image of the cross or across the image of the Christian church on basically all sides of the Christian churches, you'd be very um, aptly right to write, stamp the word across it, faith. The nightmare, the fail of Christianity today is sex. And if you think I'm just talking out of my own hat, I'm not. Uh, this is an impression. This is a report from the field. This is something that I've seen up to front. Uh, the vast majority of people who hate Christianity, who now have, have a kind of megaphone to the culture, which for all sorts of cultural reasons they didn't have until the relatively mem recent future. They were there, but they didn't have the megaphone. It all almost always boils down to someone who feels that they're that their sexuality or their sex life or their understanding of who they were in this dimension of themselves was somehow put down or diminished or lectured or um, um, uh, really um, decried or rendered in inutile, invalid by the Christian church. And so whether it's uh, um, in the 19th century, I can list almost half the great novelists of the 19th century, and today you could list so many literary figures as it would be impossible with exceptions of uh, people who feel, who blame Christianity, specifically Christianity as they have received it for their problems, especially in this area, which is usually the presenting symptom of when, women and men for their animus kagan against the Christian church. So this uh, podcast is a meditation on that issue, which I feel is vital, and everyone doesn't want to talk about it uh, for the reasons that make it um, our greatest... Um, the banana peel on the way to um, peripheralization. Remember that song by the B-52s? Uh, it's number three or four on their wonderful CD Funplex. Um, living on the periphery. Christians are, generally speaking, living on the periphery today because we failed to encounter and to walk into and to live the nightmare that sex is for Christianity in such a way that we could come out on the other side and say, hey, there's more to be said. We're not who you think we are. Uh, we're not, uh, we're, we have a contribution to make in this area, even that the world hasn't yet fully uh, seen, although the world has rightly seen through a lot of the problems that Christianity has brought to bear in this issue and need to be really looked at. So that's my bifocal thing, the disappearance, which is a prophetic, radical, but ultimately I don't want to say redeeming, because that wouldn't be the word that Wiley would have used. I think Wiley would have used the word harmonizing or 
understanding or compassionate to women as women and compassionate to men as men and compassionate from women to real men and compassionate from men to real women work uh, as you could find in the area. Therefore, it's a little uh, people who are heavily politically correct or are highly partisan when it comes to the war between the sexes are not going to find this book uh, ultimately bearing their bearing out their deepest and cherished animus and and kind of feeling of, of, of I've got myself straight out of out of some sense of entitlement or hatred. You're not going to get that in the book. You're going to get you're going to get an X-ray vision into your own heart if you're a man. And I believe the same is true if you're a woman. Uh, I know that it's an x-ray vision into my heart as a man, uh, but you're also going to get a kind of ultimately ironic and complimentary picture that is a kind of dazzling ode to joy that appeals at the end. There is an ode to joy at the end, a, a psychosexual, male-female, compassionate, loving, physical ode to joy with which the book ends. But I'm not going to tell you what it is, so no spoilers here. I'm, I'm not going to tell you what happens, but I'm going to give you the, the um, warning that for people who hate men and believe that men are responsible for all the ills of the world, and for people who are deeply fearful at this point of women or suspicious of women or just feel sort of paralyzed by strong women, and of course I'm one of those, the latter, um, in many instances, I hope not always, but certainly it's dogged me, you're going to find that this um this uh this book is not going to, uh, it's going to sort of take you a step further that you may not wish to go. You may want to say, I hate them all. You know, they've t destroyed my life. So, um, allow me to, uh, to make that point. Now, uh, set the background, 1951, Philip Wiley is a son of a Presbyterian minister and a very, uh, thoughtful, Ivy League, waspish type of guy. He's, uh, he comes from a, a very informed, educated, and waspish type of background that existed in those days and was rather praised and a little bit of James Gould Cousins, but unlike Cousins, well, actually like Cousins, but without, with a little bit more vulnerability, I feel, and perhaps less brilliance. Um, Wiley, uh, um, is, uh, is, uh, uh, uh open to all sorts of things. He's the son of a Presbyterian minister and completely disenchanted with the Christian church. He's just had it with the Christian church. But like many of these people, he holds on to a residual and authentic respect and admiration for Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. He holds on to something. And uh, you know, that comes out in his wonderful novel, um, uh, what is it called again? Uh, the Last Thing. Uh, it's about love and an, uh, an angel that is captured, a real live angel that is captured by an American uh, 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 aircraft carrier in the Pacific. Um, uh, and uh, so there's um, a lot here. Uh, to um, uh, of of love and of Jesus, but a tremendous and often virile and uh, uh, almost almost malicious antagonism to the Christian Church. Uh, now um, he became quite famous as a science fiction writer, although he had all sorts of interesting, uh, what were in those days called middlebrow interests, and I don't think it's a fair category because the books are good. He wrote a book called Gladiator, which uh, sort of um, started the whole series of ideas about a future world in which uh, men are uh, fighting to the death in arena sports, and uh, his was the first book of that kind. He um, wrote a very uh, famous novel called When Worlds Collide, about an asteroid hitting the Earth and destroying it, and a kind of utopian group of survivors who escape in a spaceship to a, another planet, 
and uh, uh, the end of the world, but the beginning of a Noah-like ark that escapes and has a utopian future for the human race. And it was made into a very celebrated movie with great special effects for its time in the early 50s by George Powell called When Worlds Collide. And he became a kind of Saturday Evening Post pundit, uh, was very well known and very radical. But because he was both a Christian on the one hand by birth or by uh, upbringing, had a real animus against his father who had remarried when he was young. And this often happens with these guys. They blame the church for their father's um, remarriage. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, um, he had a lot of issues in that area. And he finally sought help from Carl Jung. <laughs> Philip Wiley actually went to Zurich and uh, consulted with Carl Jung in person, and he became a kind of, he was helped very deeply in his psychosexual persona and his mourning and loss relevant to his mother and he uh, and his dad. And he became an early or at least a highly explicit Jungian with personal contact with the great man himself. Interesting, because Jung was the son of a clergyman. And uh, then he um, became very interested in what we today call the New Age. He became interested in Eastern spirituality, sort of the Christopher Isherwood world, the Somerset Maugham world, to a certain extent. A lot of people were on the kind of trail to the east before Jack Kerouac. They were going east in the 30s, literally going east, uh, to the, a la the Razor's Edge, uh, before Jack Kerouac made it more popular with Dharma bombs and his whole world of beats. And uh, this man was kind of really a beat deep down with a little bit of Ayn Rand and a, a, a striped Brooks Brothers suit and an impeccable uh, look. He looked like he was right out of one of the... Uh, a Harvard final club, but actually it would have been a Princeton uh, eating club. And yet he was very radical. He's radical on sex. He was deeply understood the human problem. He saw through and very underst- that was his heritage from the Protestant background that he understood the fallenness of the human being, male and female. He was not an idealist. And yet he had this odd meditational interest and Upanishad interest, which sort of um, simmered there. And he had the Jungian background. And of course he had a tumultuous marital history, although he finally, his second marriage. Wiley's second marriage was a very happy one, I believe, and he dedicated the disappearance to his second wife, and I believe he meant it. It's a good statement. Now, um, the uh, let me uh, unfold this novel just a little bit, read a few passages from it, and then comment on it. I really uh, invite you to read it. I have before me, I have before me, in addition to the um, to the new Bison Press reprint, which just blew me away about six years ago, I have an original edition, which I bought in Denver uh, two weeks ago, uh, paperback, but the 1951 Carvel edition with a sensational 50s cover on it. I mean, it's so good. It's it's so current. It's so modern. It, it's all marriages at a certain point when the man and the woman, the woman qua woman and the man qua man are unable to communicate. Uh, they are Earth to Mars, you know, the old thing, Mars, Venus, all that is summed up in this 50s graphic, and I can't find it in the internet. The... Um, the front cover illustration was by a man named Tom Dunn, D-U-N-N. And uh, oh, by the way, Philip Wiley's most famous book is called Generation of Vipers, in which he coined the phrase momism and the sort of anti-mom thing going on in the early 50s. And a certain segment of American elite culture came directly from Philip Wiley. And he was anti his stepmother or whoever she was. It's a lot of its masqueraded personal agendas. But let's talk about the disappearance. Then let's talk a little bit about uh, Christianity and relationship to it. And then I'll talk about the relation of men and female in general. And maybe just a few observations which may or may not relate to you. Um, we, uh, there are four main characters. And don't worry, not spoilers, but I'm going to talk about uh, just a couple of the themes. Uh, on, uh, at f- f- 5.04, on an uh, afternoon of February 
at 5 or 4 p.m. in 1950, all the women disappear and all the men disappear, and it's never explained. One of the great things about the book is he never explains why it happened. Is it judgment on men for the way they treat women and the way they feel and think about women? Is it judgment on the women for having been... See, he takes the feminist line that we're now accustomed to hearing, that a woman's greatest sin is not anything she's done, but her sin of fear. It takes very seriously in 1950. Are you out of your mind? I mean, he obviously wrote this book in the late 1940s. I mean, are you out of your mind? He wrote a book about that the greatest sin of women is their fear of men, not anything they do, and that they must be cured of their fear. And to some extent, one of the ways the cure works is through lesbianism which is he, he actually goes all the way with it. Do they discover that the cure for the, what men have done to the women is, being, is lesbianism? And he goes all the way with that uh, notion uh, with, in, in so astonishingly and so upsettingly, if you're a man, especially if you're married to a woman who, because the, the key character is married to a woman who's disappeared, and the way she deals with her coming to terms is through... Uh, exploring the whole question of, of her gay persona. This is 1950. And similarly, the men are, are also thinking about that, although they have a kind of certain in, in, inherent horror of, of, of the gay uh, homosexual, male homosexual action, but they're waltzing around it, and that's another theme that comes in powerfully. But what will happen is that men begin if I may use the word repent, it's too strong a word, uh, or it's, not the, it's too laden, and Wiley wouldn't have used the word, the men begin to come to realize what it has been that they have done to the women through their objectification of their wives, girlfriends, and women in general. They come to realize that this is visited upon them, this apocalyptic, terrible uh, void, le vide, is visited upon them. They don't talk about God in some form for their, what he calls, the colossal bigotry of men towards women. And similarly, the women come to realize that they didn't love enough. It's very interesting. They gradually begin to realize that underneath their fear was a kind of love that was not really, uh, in some sense, it wasn't real love. Love that was characterized by fear and by dominatedness wasn't really love. And there must be another kind of love, a love that is 50-50, not 70-30, these goddamn men you know, uh, I want to be on top and in power and I want to dominate them for all that they've done for me over the centuries and thousands of years, that somehow their love has failed. And the hero and the hero, the female hero and her daughter lead the way, her twice divorced daughter, uh, uh, lead the way. She's very young and the mother is about my age, sort of early 50s, but they're both sexually vibrant women and very, very smart and very together, and they both become leaders. One, the daughter becomes a hunter. She becomes the she becomes a crack shot. She becomes one of the few women in the community in Miami who actually can, can kill game. So she becomes a crucial part of the survival of the women in a, in a world where the machines have kind of stopped. And, the, uh, and her mother becomes a, a rock among the women in a time of hysteria and confusion. And they're both sincerely tempted by the gay option. And it has all the sense in the world. Wiley is not judging it. There's no male judgmentalism. But the men, on the other hand, begin to really see if the women discover independently that their love has been flawed and they haven't loved out of fear, the men discover that what they thought was love was really a kind of objectification 
and kind of a taking for granted. And it also, in many ways, a condescension. They have expected women to do things for them that they had no right to expect, and they didn't really live into the women. And fortunately, Wiley takes it so far that he gives the hero, who's an academic, a philosophical, rather detached person, who's not a male, he's not a rapist type, he's not a predator in any way, shape, or form. He would never watch internet pornography, and he's a good man. He's a good, what, what even the women would say. He's fundamentally a good and not demanding, not truly selfish man, even in the area of his sex life himself, although he's very heterosexual. He loves his wife, Paula. He's a good man. Even he is absolutely taken to the edge of sanity because he discovers either even below his rather refined goodwill, his literary goodwill, uh, there hides a man who's really um, not on the right track at all and hasn't even known. He's never taken the time, and he receives a body blow through something he discovers that happened before the disappearance. He fortunately receives a body blow that shakes him so completely that he is turned to jelly. And Wiley takes the inner struggle of this good man who becomes a leader among men in a post-female world it takes this good man and shatters him psychosexually. So he must actually come to the end of his tether in his maleness, just as his wife, as it turns out, comes to the end of her tether because she realizes that what she thought was love was fear. And instead of reacting with aggression and entitlement, she explores the meaning of love. And he realizes that what he thought was love was ultimately some form of self-satisfaction and complacency. And he, his world is, I'm going to tear your playhouse down. Uh, and all this happens um, uh, before we have the ode to joy of the Ninth Symphony. Now, a couple of little um, things, however. In addition to Bill, the man I've just spoken to, and his wife, the rock among women, who are middle-aged, Paula, there's another character there, natural daughter, Edwina, who's very confused sexually and a bit of a kind of a man-hungry... Uh, she, she, she lives for men sexually, even in the 1950s, but she, she's all over the ball yard, and she uh, actually hates men. She deeply hates men, and she's sort of working something out here that is highly ambivalent, and it all comes out, and she's about 24. Her name is Edwina, and she is, she turns out to be a, a major a cause to recognize. She's, in many ways, the book could be called the, 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 uh, the, the, the new being of uh, Edwina Gaunt. The last name is Gaunt. I thought of John Galt, you know, in uh, Atlas Shrugged, Bill and Paula Gaunt. Sorry, G A U N T, and the daughter Edwina Gaunt. She is she is she she becomes the new woman, the young woman who realizes that she actually hated men underneath her uh, blasé attitude towards um, sort of a kind of uh, sex hungry woman. She's not a caricature though. She 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 has a daughter, and she's she has to also come to the end of her mothering. She has to come to a point <clears throat> where her relationship with her daughter, because she's in fact a mother of a young girl. Uh, she has to come, she has to go all the way with mothers and daughters to come to some sense of what love is. And she becomes actually the one who leads the way, Edwina. And then there's a character, and I have three more characters to talk about. There's Bill and Paula Gaunt, the hero and heroine. They're separate, but they're the hero and heroine. There's Edwina Gaunt, who's separated from all men, and she becomes a key character, a key positive character, as they all do. It's not a novel of redemption, but it, it 
is. Empirically, it's a novel of redemption. There, there's a, then there's a kind of Don Juan Lothario. He's done what all the men really wish they could do. He's gone down. You know, they used to say in the Hasty Pudding show, he's been down. He's gone down with everything but the Titanic. You know, uh, there's these vulgarisms in my growing up at Harvard. Uh, you know, with the Hasty Pudding shows. Um, Teddy Barker is sort of your your guy who's sort of had a sexual affair with half the women in the country club set of wherever these people live in Miami in 1948. No one knows except the women, and they sort of he's sort of the local uh, gigolo, except he's very well bred and went to Princeton and is is very kind of blasé and quiet, and knows how to mix a martini. But he's he's. He's gotten what all the men wish they'd gotten, but he's not married. And he's really a Lothario and a Don Juan, and, and you don't like and he's You're not meant to like him, and yet, wouldn't you know, Wiley is so on the edge here, this, this odd Jungian New Age preppy uh, with a science fiction imagination. He is so on to, by the way, night after night, uh, let me get back to that. Uh, he is so on to, uh, to life that he, he turns this Lothario, who's gotten a lot of it from a male, particularly male point of view, uh, into to a hero. The man becomes a human, a humane hero. By the way, I wanted to say that one of uh, the many movies that were made of Wiley's works, one of them is based on his, uh, his novel Night Upon Night, which reflects uh, uh, Wiley's interest in the afterlife in the context of World War II. It's a, it's a World War II novel of uh, people living uh, on the home front uh, who are faced with the death of people they love, and it's about the afterlife. What, does it, is there anything to the notion of the continuing existence of individuals after they've died? Duh. But he explores it in a very deep way. But the humorous thing about this book, it was made into a Hollywood movie, a very controversial one, and it's not on DVD and it's not on video. And I've only seen sections of it. You can look at the some, a very long trailer of it. It starred Ronald Reagan, Night Upon Night, from like 1945 or 6. And I have a copy of it. I have an edition of it in my hand, Night Upon Night. It's a very hard-to-read novel because, you know, there's a certain kind of stilted English that people actually talked about in the 40s and 50s. You sometimes see it in the movies. Uh, that, you know, what they, like Lloyd Douglas is the worst part of it. What did they mean? American people spoke a much more prosy English back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s than they do today. You sometimes see it in old television shows and the old Twilight Zone shows. It's actually quite literate. It's not English, English English, uh, but it's kind of an American English. It's very prosy. So you can barely read this book night upon night. But listen to this. It starred... Uh Ronald Reagan, and it starred Vivica Lindfors, who was supposed to be the new Ingr uh, Ingrid Bergman. She wasn't, but she was very good. And it stars um, uh, Una Massen, a German actress who I adore because she was in a sci-fi film called Rocketship XM, uh, and who had a brief but wonderful career. And Broderick Crawford as the bohemian artist who leads them into all truth about the afterlife. Anyway, it's a failed movie and a failed book. Y'all, I defy you to finish Night Upon Night, but it reflects Wiley's eclectic, fascinating pre-beatnik, waspish, Jungian, New Age, Christian-based, loving Jesus and love, but hating, but anti-authoritarian to the absolute core persona that is really ready to be discovered. And by the way, Wiley's last novel was made later on into a, into a television show and has now been made into LA 2017. A Spielberg produced a movie recently about an ecological disaster in Los Angeles of 2017, I think it's called. 
the the book upon which that movie is based and upon which a television show is based, upon which the movie is based, and was a huge success. It came out in 1973, the last thing he ever wrote just before he died. It may have been published posthumously. Wiley anticipated the ecological disaster of Southern California, based mostly on smog and pollution. And I think he wrote it with John Bronner, uh, who's a great uh, resource, B-R-U-N-N-E-R. So Wiley anticipated almost everything, but the one he anticipated the most is this. Now, there's I talked about Bill and Paula. I talked about Edwina and Teddy. And there are finally two other characters which are crucial. Jim and Bella. Jim is a weird, slightly, slightly dweebish, but a sort of a hippie, but in 1940s terms, kind of person that the children would call by their first name. You know, his children call him Jim, sort of, you know, with a kind of early beard. Does he have all that many hormones? He's he's not, he's basically just slightly nerdy. A nerdy guy whose wife is named Bella, wouldn't you know? And they're separated. And what strikes you about them is, here, uh, Bella is talking on page 17 about her husband. She's been separated from him by the disappearance. She says, I've always worried about the thoughts Jim has and the cults and things he investigates. But I've always felt, too, like your Bill, Paula, that they were mostly in his imagination. He was only interested in these strange things because he wanted to know all the truth and because he wanted to be sure he was being as good a man as possible as if there could be any better. But he's gone away. Now, what uh, is with their son? Uh, What's true of uh, Jim and Bella? Jim becomes, although he's uh, not a main character, he becomes the key character in the book for religious reasons because Jim is onto um, the only possible way that the men will ever be able to contact the women who have disappeared because the men have all these scientific theories and they have all these conferences and the world goes to hell and there's a world war and half the world is wiped out and the Russians, remember it's the Cold War, and all this terrible stuff happens and the men are fighting and killing each other like crazy. They kill them all, almost all of each other. But they never stop to think, is there a spiritual, religious, or sort of non-rational answer both to what has happened and to what could happen to bring us back together. And Bill, Jim, I said, Jim becomes the key character. You have Bill and Paula, the intellectuals, the strongly together people who in fact are shattered by what happens. You have the Lothario sort of, he's gotten what every man wants, Teddy, who turns out to become a great person, and oddly, so this is totally non-pharisaical, and you have Edwina, who has a very checkered sexual past, you know, this was the 50s, and people were still people, you know, people got pregnant out of wedlock, you know, in the 50s, just as much as they, they did any other time, there was no difference in the human body, and in human relations, they just didn't talk about it, but uh, publicly, but so, so Edwina becomes something that she wasn't, without being a Pharisee, she becomes a bona fide hero, uh, and a huntress or hunter. And then there's Jim, the little slightly nerdy but normal or kind of the kind of guy you might find living next door in a sort of a small, medium-sized house in an inner suburb of an American city. He, because he sort of rejected conventional spirituality, he comes upon, he stumbles upon, not completely successfully, but with astonishing insight, what in fact might finally be the link between the the desperately unhappy and violent, even in some ways loathsome males, and the profoundly confused and hurt 
and um, beginning to be freed, but still pretty angry women on the other side of whatever separates them. And Bella becomes a key figure because she loves her husband. Bella is constantly helping Paula, the rock-hard woman, but who labors under tremendous resentments against her husband she's parted from. Bella, who loved her husband, uh, is able to be constantly the voice to the women of a woman who says, look, I know you hate your men for what they did to you and what you allowed yourself to do for them, but I happen to have a husband who wasn't quite like that. He was kind of a strange sort of a guy, but I loved him, and I liked him, and I think he loved me, and I miss him like hell. And Bella is always the voice of, of a kind of love that is is real and humane and not disintegrated and not uh, uh, compartmentalized. And she and her husband obviously have a good sexual relationship and a really natural one. And she loves her husband. And Bella is the voice of a kind of sane, real, heartfelt uh, respect for her man. She's obviously never used... Uh, uh, Jim. So you have Jim and Bella. Now you finally have two tiny characters who are very important characters. And I'm going to go on for about another 12 minutes on this book. You have the Dean of the Episcopal Cathedral in Miami. He's the Reverend Connaught is what he's called, but he's actually Dean Connaught, C-O-N-N-A-U-G-H-T. And he's a major figure. And everybody goes to the church initially. All the men go to the church initially for help. I mean, they're devastated. Their first thought is to go to the church. And they all sing Faith of Our Fathers. He had the dean, the stupid, totally ridiculous, uh, um, cut-off uh, Pharisee. Cannot uh, Dean Cannot has him sing Faith of Our Fathers, and Wiley is so into knowing that he knows so much that he immediately points out that that Cannot didn't want him to sing the hymn because it's not an Episcopal hymn. You know how many times when I was a young person, I was in situations when everybody sang Faith of Our Fathers, and no Episcopalian knew this hymn. I mean, I was a, always an Episcopalian by education. I didn't didn't know the hymn. We never sang it. It was it was sang home that Congregationalists would sing or Presbyterians would sing. I mean, Jack Jack Kerouac said they used to sing it sing it at Horace Mann or wherever it was, uh, wherever it was he went to school, you know, up on Riverside Drive or wherever, way up on the west side. Uh, they all, all the kids were most, mostly Jewish and they sang in the 40s, Faith of Our Fathers, because they were trying to be- think they were uh, waspish, uh, the staff, you know, and the headmaster. Classic. Well, um, he even says that when they all gather in, in shock in the Episcopal Cathedral to sing uh, Faith of Our Fathers, he said the, the dean fought the choice because it wasn't an Episcopalian hymn. Uh, now, uh, most people who sing it don't know that, but that's just a fact. Now, um, Connaught lectures them all when he tries to sort of use a lot of theological truisms, and he comes across as a complete and utter, hopelessly out-of-touch fake. And we soon find out that Dean Connaught has a sexual secret of the most, not a small thing, not a not a one-night stand, not something that sort of happened once and never happened again, or, or something that uh, has been treated. He has a whopper. Dean Connaught, the Pharisee, who actually thinks very highly of himself and his position in the church, he is sitting on top of a whopper, and he's married to a wife, uh, a, a very uh, a homely, plain, stout, 
pharisaical wife who sort of knows how to be a clergyman's wife. And she's a classic type. Now, you may say they don't exist. They still exist everywhere. They may look different. They may have different haircuts. But these sort of beautiful people who sort of are working together in evangelical ministry to sort of do good, are very sincere, there are thousands of them. And I, uh, this is just another empirical observation. But his wife is separated, like all females are, and he begins to, because he is a Christian at a certain level of depth, he begins to, to come to terms with his, uh, the whopper of a secret that he has. And he finally comes to a point of, of confession. It's a major thing, and he's broken. Uh, Dean Connaught is, is, is broken, not by his present and not by his future, and not by any threat because the whole thing has gone up in flames. He is, um, he is obsessed by his own profound hypocrisy. And, but his wife, this, and Wiley's words here, this so-called plain, stout, missionary sort of a woman who really seemed very um, not at all in touch with the physical or intimate or sexual side of life, turns out underneath the exterior, she's hot. Uh, she's, she's very much in touch. All she desperately wanted was a husband who could make love to her. And turns out she knows everything. And turns out she's willing to forgive because she sort of understands what a dip her husband was. And she actually loves him. This woman, his wife, turns out to be fabulous. Uh, she has a funny name like Thomasine or Wilma or something. I mean, she, she's everything you think she is. And it turns out deep down, she's very She's chugging. She's really in touch, and she's just suppressed. But what's most touching about her is her ability when there's no man around and she's lost him, instead of just saying, this terrible hypocrite wrecked my life. And he did. She could say that. She has such compassion on her ridiculous husband that she's able to forgive him in a scene in a grocery store where there are very few goods left. Uh, in a medium stage of the women's uh, world where they're having to learn how to farm and raise cattle and uh, get infections removed and run electricity plants and finally you run railroads and dig coal. Uh, there's a bit of a 50s vibe, by the way. If you're very much into sort of a feminist view, and that's fine. You'll love the book. You will love the book. But initially, you'll be saying, this isn't me. This, these are, this woman is like Mrs. Cleaver. I mean, I mean Mrs. You know, the B, I mean, whatever, I forget, Mrs. Jerry Mather's mother. Uh, this is like a, a Leave it to Beaver or Pleasantville, you know, that movie. Uh, this is a 50s America where women were doing women's things and men were doing women. Hold on, everybody. Read the book. Underneath it, cauldron. Underneath it, very competent women. Underneath it, very frustrated women. Underneath it, very hypocritical women. Underneath it, very hypocritical men. Underneath everything, men who were always fantasizing and thinking the most unwieldy and unawful thoughts. And underneath it all, a lot of Zen Buddhists. And underneath it, it's a, a, a whole, you have no idea what's... Uh, you're going to actually come out here. Now, I'm going to stop just for a second. Anyway, don't, um, don't uh, allow that to, uh, to um, put you off uh, because uh, there's, uh, there's something here. Uh, it, it, the 50s vibe uh, disappears in about uh, 20 pages. Now, um, um, there's... Uh, there's a very uh, deep religious uh, issue going on, and it has to do with uh, Pharisaism versus forgiveness. 
but what happens is that the Christian uh, turning of the various people, there's a strong Christian culture still here in this world, is not able to do it. It doesn't save the people. And that is, uh, uh, I want to... Um, read uh, just um, a little bit uh, the concluding power of uh, what uh, Bella, the wife of Jim, whom I talked about, she sort of stumbles upon the final secret of the novel. Uh, the novel is finally charts the way um, um, potentially for uh, you and me as Christian people to learn what it is that, that, that we might uh, channel from the, the experience of Christian forgiveness, because that is the heart of it. It's the, it's the woman taking an adultery story, woman neither do I condemn thee. It's the she who is forgiven much loveth much. It is that aspect of Christianity which is the best part of Christianity. It is the, the essence of Christianity. All the rest of it, the church side, the, all the heavily, you know, the fear that if we abandon ourselves to forgiveness we'll somehow act out. All that is not helping the world. We have simply, if we're going to have any future in the first world that is not of a compartmentalized B-52s living on the periphery, we're going to have to bring to bear to the cultural turmoil of today and the war between the sexes some sense that the doctrine or experience of forgiveness, a real complete forgiveness, bears listening to, bears hope. That's what we're going to have to, uh, that's the only thing I feel that we have that can help. Not forgiveness until you become a Christian and then you get back under the law, which is sadly what all Christian churches ultimately come down to. I say all advisedly. You'll say, well, not all. I am saying all. You can disagree. I have yet to find an exception except for people who are actually not in the church anymore of people who really preach this message in such a way that the believers, as well as the non-believers, can hear that, um, that Christ came to forgive sins. And that though he sins 70 times 7, and that the last trump is about mercy rather than, rather than wrath. I have yet to hear it in a Christian pulpit from a person who hasn't been thrown out of the church. Uh, you all disagree, and I hope you'll come back at me on that. I'd like to find an example, maybe on the Isle of Wight, there's such a person. Maybe on, in the, the Balearic Islands, there's such a person. Maybe on, on, uh, on the southern end of Argentina, there's such a woman preaching this doctrine, a person. But I haven't heard it. And uh, the book is about it. And uh, without giving away anything of the very odd and most unexpected um, solution, but credible solution, which the author is able to bring to this very lengthy 450 or so, 400-page novel, I'm going to just conclude with a little conversation that occurs. Um, uh, Bella, on page 332, the wife of Jim, the kind of dweeby, mystic, hippie, beatnik, pre-pre-pre, all those things, but who loves her husband, is, is, is receiving, is talking to Paula, the rock-hard, very gifted, highly sexual, now sort of turning to the whole possibility of, a, of, a, of, a, of, of becoming, of, of finding her, her, her satisfaction in a gay relationship, as millions of women are now doing, in a world which has not been scarred by war, but has other plague it has been scarred with, and a lot of deaths among 
third world, as it were, peoples who can't fight infections. Um, Paula is talking to Bella uh, and uh, sort of at a, at a just discussing uh, uh, some vibes that Bella seems to be getting that 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 the men are are reaching out to them beyond the veil, and it, it, it is actually happening beyond the surface. And um, she has confided to Paula, Bella has, that at night she dreams about the men, and we know, the reader, that what she's seeing is actually happening. She says, you know, Bella stared out over the hot fields. I think they're farming at this point in the narrative. Uh, uh, things are so bad, they're, they're, they're planting grain, corn. Bella stared out over the hot fields. Now, Bella is, sp- Bella is speaking for the kind of woman that Wiley feels is the new woman. Not Paula, Bella. And we'll find that Teddy, on the other side, who was a very sexually free man, is ultimately gradually becoming the kind of new man because he loves women. He ultimately deeply doesn't have, he doesn't condemn, he doesn't deep, his sexuality is not a put down of women. It's kind of a celebration of women. And similarly, Bella's love for her husband is based on a a kind of integrated field of love. Bella stared out over the hot fields her face filled with light, with trust and warmth and sensitivity. They talk interminably, Paula, about what was wrong. You know, but I don't. About, mostly, what a mess everybody has made of sex. They talk about how sex-hungry they were and how ashamed they were of being hungry because they had been taught to be ashamed. Listen to this. They talk about, this is Bella's words in a female world, what a mess everybody has made of sex. They talk about how sex-hungry they were and how ashamed they were of being hungry because they had been taught to be ashamed. And then Paula uh, reflects, and she says, um, uh, she says, you know, since the men went away and women have talked freely I've been hysterical with laughter sometimes and more often just downright furious to find out how much utter bilge almost everybody believes about sex and how dreadfully superstitious they are about it. Thing, ye gods, and Paula continues resignedly, we didn't really do anything in any case and now we're whipped, we, the women, there are no men in this world, it's now about three or four years into their aloneness, just as the men are in their parallel universe. We we whipped now, done for. That's the proper reward, I guess, for being cheats and hypocrites, for trying to lick nature. It can't be done. Whatever a person's real morals are, they have to come from inside that person. Social morals just start underground fires that consume the person. Now, troops, remember the line in, uh, that I talked about before, and I talked about it in Savannah, Georgia recently, in, uh, uh, in uh, St. Paul. Um, law increased the trespass. Law came in, judgment, and it increased the trespass. That is what Paul was saying when he was saying what Paula is saying here on page 333 of the Disciplines, social morals just start underground fires that consume the person and the people around that person. Now, Bella adds, I'm not finished. This, this is, this is a, a very, uh, uh, to me, a very comforting passage. Bella says, this is climactic, although not giving it away any 
Lots of spoilers. No plot here. Before the men went, said Bella, I thought all the talk about the importance of sex was silly, even kind of dirty. Now, being alone, hundreds of nights, thinking without caring where my thoughts go, I know about what they felt. Bella looked wistfully at the hot field. Just to live a day, really being the way we really are, would be worth a lifetime of most people's lives. The truest feelings we have are some of the ones we called sin. We put thousands of people in jail for doing things everyone would like to do, and most people do, sometime or other. It's no wonder that we were all so scared and hateful and miserable. Did you get the feeling ever in your dream, Bella, that the men might come back? Bella shook her head. No. Did they have any hope? No. And they thought that our failure to be honest and real about sex, about love, they called it, was the cause of this mess? Yes. And finally, Paula gets silent, mists together. And it says, slowly her eyes filled. I was too selfish. I was too mixed up to be in love. I liked Bill, my husband. I enjoyed him as a man. But love? I didn't know myself well enough then to love anybody. I missed my chance. I'm going to have to stop for a minute. So what do we have here in this uh, concluding word, which was not uh, giving away the the direction in which the plot finally goes. We have uh, a, uh, a visionary Bella who is able to sort of listen in for reasons when you read the book you'll see on the male world, which is in fact um, a world now after four years of, uh, of tremendous honesty about what was wrong and um, how that uh, the men had been ashamed. And the problem was not their sexual drive. The problem was the fact that they'd been made to ashamed, to feel ashamed of it, and therefore it had gotten uh, out of hand, out of, the, we would say, the law had created a, a situation of, of compulsion that uh, led uh, ultimately to it, to a wrong, uh, a skewed picture of what was otherwise normal. But instead of uh, Paula and Bella mocking the men, because in a way they're speaking from a position of superiority, the women here, of a kind of cultural and stark, uh, of a cultural and historic superiority, um, they they are speaking from actually a position of of of, of paralysis and kind of a cul-de-sac or a a a, 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 a box canyon. We're done for. We were cheats and hypocrites. In other words, the women didn't speak up either. The women uh, were, were, were trying to lick nature. They themselves were trying to get around it and to somehow, they were talked into something that wasn't true. And she comments, whatever a person's real morals are, they have to come from inside. And socially imposed morals just start underground fires that consume the person. This is the child abuse scandal in the Church of Rome. This is the multitudinous never-ending and enduring sexual scandals among high-profile Christians because the moralism from the outside causes an underground fire. 
And it not only consumes the person, it consumes the people around the person. And then Bella confesses that, you know, I used to think that men were sort of dirty when they talked about the importance of sex. Uh, it kind of made me very uncomfortable. I, I sort of thought ashamed of it. And then she says, now being alone hundreds of nights, thinking without caring where my thoughts go, I know about just what they, the men, felt. Ashley, to live a day, Bella says, looking at the hot field, really being the way we really, and that reminds me of a line from Rumi, the over-quoted Iranian poet, where he says, beyond good and bad, there is a field. Bella looking beyond the field, just to live a day, really being the way we really are, really really being in italics, would be worth a lifetime of most people's lives. The truest feelings we have are the ones we called sin, and uh, our failure to be honest and real about sex is the cause of what has happened. She comes upon in her personal, balanced, warm, normal, that is to say, not intellectually conceptualized, abstracted views, Bella, her name, I think, I forget her last name, but Bella comes upon the cause of what it was. Failure to be honest and real. And then Paula, instead of getting mad or getting reactive, says, I, I myself as a woman, I was too selfish. I was too mixed up. I liked my husband, but love, I, I didn't know myself well enough to love anybody, and I missed my chance. So that, dear reader, is the position of the hero, Paula, the rock older woman, the warm and soft and tender woman who still loves her husband, who has a kind of channel to him, despite the curtain, the cosmic blink, Bella, and Jim on the other side, who is uh, in touch in some way with his wife, though scarcely knowing it, and what the vehicle is. You'll be very interested to find out because ultimately there is a spiritual or religious vision at the heart of this novel by a somewhat disillusioned 50s pundit. And uh, these two groups of people, Jim and Bill, the depressed academic, betressed by some things he's found out about his wife that he never knew, Jim with his vehicle, Bella with her warm and real realistic, humbled love, and Paula with also her humbled and now self-viewing love. They all are on the verge, having come to the point of self-knowledge that is bitter but sweet. Eric Burden, the lead singer of The Animals, recently was said, are you bitter about the fact that you got no money for those two years of huge international success for a variety of... He was cheated out of it. And he said, well, he said that he was speaking from his 60s. I'm... I'm bitter, but I'm also sweet. I'm bittersweet. It sounds like a cliche, but the words were obviously came out of his heart. Eric Burden is not bitter. It's bitter, but it's also sweet. It's what it is. And that's not uh, some kind of cant. And now we find our characters in The Disappearance by Philip Wiley on the verge of what it is they're meant to find out. I hope this has addressed you, even in your Christian life, as you look upon uh, this... Uh, Brilliant, prophetic book, The Disappearance. Thank you so very much, and God bless.